Uh, yes, hello. Yes, Werner? Yes. Hi, it's Matt, Matt Schechner. How are you? It is. So, uh, is this a podcast, uh, meaning it's recorded and uh, distributed via voice? Correct. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. So it's just just you and I having having a chat, and we were excited to have you on stage in London. Uh, but uh, I guess these days this is the best we can do. Of course, we are all affected, and the funny thing is that um, I do have uh, two theatrical releases. Normally, you have a theatrical release every two or three years, but here. I've got two films out uh, within the next fortnight. So, of course, the theaters are, theaters are closed. Flying Fortresses, manned by United States Army Air Force crews, bound for Germany in broad daylight. Well, I went to the mountains when I was only two weeks old. The RAF pounding the continent by night, the Americans by day. There was a carpet bombing hitting Munich and my mother fled into the mountains, so I grew up completely isolated. According to the high command, a tremendous battle has taken place in the area north of the Sea of Ossoff. I had no clue that cinema existed. Have you got it? I think so, yes, I think so. Weber, my notebook. I started to make films when I was 19 and somehow studied a few things that I hated in school, like history or literature, but it was only a a little side event. I never studied seriously um, and then got a scholarship and I dropped out very quickly. Francois Truffaut called my next guest the greatest filmmaker alive today. His most recent film, Fitzcarraldo, has just won the Best Director Award at the Cannes Film Festival. We're delighted that he could be with us tonight for his first talk show appearance ever. Welcome, please, Werner Herzog. The decision had to be made by each individual crew member. Uh, Do we do that or not? Like, do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? Uh, And we took uh, the decision individually. I could not ask anyone, but I I said to the two cinematographers back in 1974, when La Soufrière volcano in the Caribbean was about to explode. And I said... um, I'm going in, give me one of the cameras I can shoot myself. But uh, one of the two cinematographers immediately said, no, you are not going to go alone. The other one, Ed Lachman, a wonderful, great cinematographer from the USA, he said, let me think a little bit about it. And so and he decided he would do it. But it was clear, he asked me, what is going to happen if that mountain explodes? If it blasts, and I said to him, Edward, we shall be airborne. 
<laughs> yeah, but he came along, yeah, he said, okay, yes, let's do it. So, or for example, when we crashed with our steamship through rapids for the film Fitzcarraldo, after I had moved the steamboat over the mountain in the jungle, it had to go down and uh, uh, crash through the wildest rapids in this entire area. And, and of course, we finally shot it with uh, people on board. Everyone who was on board actually pushed me, let's do it, let's do it. We should have shots on board the ship that is uh, out of control and crashing into the rocks of the of the of the canyon. Uh, let's do it, and and we did it, and and of course it was uh, strain, and some of us got injured. Right, but but you did you accomplish what you set out to accomplish? Yes, and uh, you see, it's it's not impossible dreams. I always do the doable. And you've also taken on some very difficult subjects. I know into the abyss about a Texas murder case. Do these ideas, are these things that you read that, how do you, I mean, in the most simple terms, how do you come up with these ideas? Well, quite often they stumble into me. For 13 years, Timothy Treadwell lived among the grizzly bears in the Alaskan wilderness. During that time, he shot over 100 hours of videotape until 2003, when he was killed by one of the bears he had sworn to protect. Grizzly Man was one of those stories. Uh, uh, producer Eric Nelson, who had been very helpful for another project without taking a credit or a finder's fee for some of the money, I paid him a visit um, and uh, he took me around his facilities. We had a conversation. And when I stood up um, <clears throat> from his a little table, glass table, full of papers and half-eaten lunch salad and things like that. I was not searching for a film project. I was searching for my car keys that I had misplaced. And he, believing that I spotted something, pushes over uh, a few papers to, to me and says, read this. We are doing an interesting project. And I went home, actually read it five minutes later. I was on my way back. And I, I somehow uh, knew this was so big. It was an article about Timothy Treadwell, one of the first ones. It was so big, it would haunt me until the end of my days if I didn't do it. And the story of Grizzly Man is uh, Timothy Treadwell, and I believe his girlfriend, actually lived with grizzly bears and was ultimately murdered by them. Expedition 2001 coming to an end for grizzly people. For me, Timothy Treadwell. I came here and protected the animals as best I could. In fact, I'm the only protection for these animals out here. The government flying over a grand total of two times in two months. How dare they? How dare they challenge me? How dare they smear me in their campaigns? How dare they? When they do not look after these animals and I come here in peace and in love, neutral, in respect. I will continue to do this. I will fight them. I will be an American dissident if I need be. There's a patriotic time going on right now, but as far as this fucking government's concerned, fuck you, motherfucking Park Service. Now Treadwell crosses a line with the Park Service, which we will not cross. He attacks the individuals with whom he worked for 13 years.
I beat your fucking asses. I protected the animals. Uh, I did it. You do not speak about murdering when it comes to animals. It's, it's a natural thing. And it's a natural thing of food chain, although grizzly bears do not eat humans. That's what happens to you when you are in contact with uh, polar bears. Because they hunt, they hunt for mammals, seals and things the size of human beings. The grizzly bear after hibernation is out in the fields grazing like cattle for, for two months or so, and then going for salmon during the time of the salmon run. So they normally do not attack human beings, but it does happen. And he, believing uh, he was the protector of the grizzly bears against the bad guys, the poachers, that virtually do not exist, um, he had to save them and, and spent um, his uh, summer seasons in such proximity with the grizzly bears that it's not, not right. You do not step uh, in front of a grizzly bear 1,100 pounds heavy and touch, uh, touch his face and sing a song to him. You just don't do that. You have to respect the sphere uh, of the of the grizzly bear, so there was a, a fundamental misunderstanding, a philosophical misunderstanding about wild nature and our relationship to wild nature. One of the films that we all recall and love was uh, was your work with Nicolas Cage in two thousand nine, uh, Bad, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. He's an interesting actor. He's done a lot, a lot of stuff and. Certainly it's not not right. Yeah. No, no, no. Can I stop you? Yes, please. He's he's not an interesting actor. He's he's got the grace of God upon him. He's one of the greatest we have. Yeah. Who brought him in? That's just questioning him. I'll be there in ten minutes. Tell him I'm on my way. Tell him if he puts his hands on this guy, he's going to have a problem. I don't give a shit, Armand. You tell him to take a fucking break. She crazy. They don't care. Excuse me, could you tell me how much longer that's going to be? You just Hello, miss. I'm a lieutenant in the police department. I'm in the middle of a homicide investigation. Can I get my prescription, please? Do you see I'm on the phone? Hey, you can't come back here. You got me waiting 30 minutes so you can make a fuck personal phone call. And, and Nicholas himself uh, being asked in public... Uh, what his greatest performance has been, and he says, uh, bad lieutenant. And then there's nothing. And then comes the film that won him the Academy Award. That's Nicholas, that's Nicholas Cage's own uh, assessment. And, and I think he's right, and he's one of the, of the truly great actors that we have. And... You've worked with so many people also, and they all say very commonly about you that in many cases, not just Nicolas Cage, as you just told us, but that you managed to get the best work out of a lot of people. Do yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, when you look at, uh, for example, Christian Bale in um, Rescue Dawn, or you look at uh, Klaus Kinski, he has done 205 films. 200 of them you cannot name, but the five films 
we did together, they stick out. Or who else? I mean, everyone, literally. Yeah. Um, what about Queen of the Desert? That was a, another one. That, also, yeah. also, uh, I think Nicole Kidman is at her very best. I mean, she's always been good. And uh, Christian Bale, let's face it, he's always, always been very, very good. But uh, in, in the films with me, most excellent. Yeah, no, ab- that's, absolutely true. That's what you do as a director. That's my profession. That's what I do. Get the best out of them. Right. Now, on occasion, you also appear in front of the camera. What was your first appearance in a film that you remember where you were an actor taking direction from someone else? That was in the early 1970s in a film by Edgar Reitz, one of the German, new German film directors. And uh, I played a, um, a very deeply disturbed murderer. And I did it well, and I was kind of scary. And uh, I've done it quite often in, in uh, parts. Um, and then more recently, Harmony Corinne, uh, Julian Donkey Boy, and um, another one as well. So um, I've uh, I've become notorious as an actor, but only if it comes to characters where I play the the badass bad guy, the the real villain. Then I'm good. Right. I'll bring up one that is uh, often left out of your bios, but it was one that uh, uh, we enjoyed tremendously. It was a premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival several years ago, and that was a film by Zach Penn called The Grand. Uh, yes, uh, it's it's a, a film that was uh, almost misunderstood by many in the audience as if it were a documentary, but of course it was scripted and staged. It's a film by Zach Penn, scripted by him, directed by him, and, and I was only acting in it. But uh, and and it was it tried to connect with my own biography and with some of my idiosyncrasies. So it was it was understood as almost a documentary, which of course is not true. Yeah, I thought it was a brilliant comedy and mockumentary. It reminded me a little bit of Rob Reiner's uh, early work with Spinal Tap. I thought it had that real sort of mockumentary feel to it. I haven't seen it, so I can't. Uh, uh, I can't well, com- you, I cannot well, comment. The grand, yeah, the grand was absolutely yeah. wonderful and, and enjoyed it immensely. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of your current projects. You said you have two films that Actually, are out. Three. Three. Yeah. So let's, three. so let's start wherever you'd like. Uh, I know we were supposed to talk to you on stage at Advertising Week Europe uh, about one of them, but let's talk about all three. No, let's make it short. I um, did a film with Mikhail Gorbachev called uh, Meeting Gorbachev. Uh, on the last uh, leader of the Soviet Union uh, in conversations with him. And I did a film, Nomad, um, about the writer Bruce Chatwin, which was supposed to be released now in two weeks or so in the United States. And of course, uh, family romance all done within 12 months. 
Um, family Romance is a feature film, of course. Talk to us about Family Romance, because I think there's a lot of great, great buzz out there about the film. Yes, and I think, um, where does it come from? It it was shown in Cannes, in the official selection, and, and they were aware in some others, like Telluride Film Festival, that is uh, potentially one of my three, four best films I ever made, a small handful films very deep very intense um and very very authentic in a way fantastic and Ernie, you've also been very uh committed uh with the rogue film school to try to help that next generation of filmmakers how did the rogue film school start well it was against uh what what you see in uh, film schools worldwide I disagree how they are how they are doing things and and in many cases they even disqualify uh young people from ever becoming a real filmmaker you I try to instill in them uh, a sense of uh, becoming self-reliant roll up your sleeves do a film for no money you can do it and family romance is one of those films it was when I heard about uh, uh, renting family members in, in Japan, within weeks I was already there filming. And I financed it out of my own pocket, like my early films. I worked the night shift as a welder in a steel factory while I was uh, in, in high school during day. And I earned the money for my first films. And you can make a feature film for theaters and for even the Cannes Film Festival for, let's say, under $50,000. And you can make a long one and a half hours uh, documentary under $10,000. And, and I did what I'm preaching. Example, how to pick locks and how to forge a document, a shooting permit. <laughs> I, did, I, did, I, did, I did a film. I did a film, Fitzcarraldo, yes, where yeah. I moved a ship over a mountain. Yeah. And I ran into a border war between Peru and Ecuador. I was mm -hmm. right at the border. <clears throat> and I was all of a sudden not allowed to move my ship or do anything. So I said to the uh, uh, colonel who ran this military camp, I said to him, but I have a shooting permit. And he said, show it to me. And I said, well, it's in, in Lima. I'd, I'd bring it to you in three days. And I brought a beautiful, beautifully crafted uh, uh, <laughs> permit, which would allow me literally everything. And I showed it to him and I said, Mi coronel, uh, colonel, just read this now. And he looked and he starts to read and he saluted and said, move on. Yeah. And in, in a way, I'm back to my early days when I was 22, 23, 24. Just roll up your sleeves jump into it, do it with all the enthusiasm, do it with the vehemence uh, that's in the project, uh, doing with the awe that comes at you and uh, forces you to make the film. So that's what I'm doing today. It's fantastic. Well, that sense of wonder and that passion shine, yes. shines through with everything you do. So looking at the Hollywood and the film world, and let's put the corona uh, you know, 
business aside, the business has changed so much in that with the whole streaming world and the rise of Netflix and all of the streaming services, the amount of money being thrown at filmmakers, at original content has skyrocketed. When you look at, you know, you read a Netflix spending seven, eight, nine billion dollars a year on original content, do you just shake your head and, you know, wonder about no. that? I mean, what's your take on that? No, there's a, there's a massive transition taking place and it's not over yet. So we have new ways of distribution. And by the way, during the time of coronavirus, when all the theaters are closed, you do have uh, a chance to see very good content via streaming. And, and uh, the distribution of cinema is moving away from the theaters. We have to face it. <coughs> and uh, so uh, it's... It's something we have to we have to acknowledge, and young people do not want to go to the movie theater; they want to go streaming, and they do not want to read anymore. They want to do um, twit tweets. Right, right. But if you're a young creative person, there are so many uh, avenues that are available to create and distribute that were never available before. Do you have a positive view of that? Of course, because uh, now um, almost all of my 70 or so films are in one way or another available via the internet, be it streaming, be it um, uh, ordering a Blu-ray via Amazon or whatever. And today, today, very, very young people are discovering my films that I made before their parents were even born. And I get very excited emails from 15-year-olds from Missoula, Montana, who have seen a film I made in 1974, The Enigma of Kaspar Hauser. And they're totally excited and they, and, and they want to see more and they are forming little clubs and, and they spread word via the internet. Right. Yeah, I, I certainly think you're right. And it's still relatively early days, you know, for it. But we we are in the midst of uh, of an incredible transition period. Uh, and I, I, I agree with your take on that. So looking back on your career, you have been one of the great minds in the industry. But let me ask, who influenced you? Where did you find inspiration as a young filmmaker no one no one no one no one no one no one because number one i didn't even know cinema existed until i was 11 okay i didn't go to theaters because in this tiny little village in the mountains of course there was nothing but i did not even know it existed until a little traveling uh, van uh, with a screen and a projector uh, stopped at the schoolhouse uh, uh, one classroom schoolhouse uh, and showed uh, some films which didn't impress me. And I always had the feeling I was the inventor of cinema. It's strange and it sounds uh, 
it sounds megalomaniac or so, but I, I always had to invent it myself. And until today, I get the feeling I am the inventor of cinema. What about looking today at the, the landscape? Whose work do you admire today, other than your own? Well, there are, there are many out there. Uh, when you look in the field of documentaries, uh, have a look at uh, Joshua Oppenheimer, the act of killing. You have to wait 25 years until, until you see a film of that caliber. And you have access to the greatest of all films now uh, via internet or streaming platforms. At, um, uh, for example, Criterion Collection, you can you can see stream Rashomon by Kurosawa, a Japanese filmmaker, which was made, I think, in 1954. It's still one of the greatest films ever made. So there's big, big, wonderful stuff out there. And looking to the future, you've been doing this now for a long time. You're still at the top of your game. When you look ahead to what's next for you in 2021 and beyond, are there particular subject areas or projects that you have in mind that you know you would like to tackle? No, I'm not looking out. I'm not searching for projects, say, very often come at me with great vehemence, and I have to, I have to do what what uh, is is like the the elephant in the room. Get get it out there, uh, do it, uh, and I have never caught up with a torrent uh, that's coming at me. Well, I've already finished my next film. It's uh, on um, meteorites, and. Um, it's uh, not completely finished. I mean, edited and the narration is there and music is there, but I haven't done technical steps like color corrections and mixing of the sound. So, But it's basically finished and I have two, three um, feature film projects and, and they are already kicking in my doors and my windows. One of the more interesting quotes that I I read about you is you said you find it odd that people are striving for happiness as a primary goal and felt that being part of something meaningful, something that helps humanity is far more important. Is that quote accurate? No, I didn't speak about what was really important. If happiness is, is your primary aim and goal in life, wonderful so be it. It's even in the American Constitution, the pursuit of happiness. No, fine, fine with that. But I, it has never really engaged my quests in life. It has much more been something about what is going to give meaning to our lives. And uh, quite often, it doesn't have to do with uh, happiness, not necessarily. But... Um, of course, when I do films, uh, there, there's something, I think, meaningful that I'm doing. But at the same time, it gives me very deep joy. And I joy, and, and I'm asking, ah, yeah, are you accepting roles in movies as a villain for making money? No, I say, 
yeah, of course, money is a natural concomitant, but I do it for the deep joy of it. Right. Well, uh, with a body of work uh, over 70-some-odd films, uh, it's hard to find a common thread, but I think the word humanity might be one word that gets close to being a common thread to your body of work. Um, and well, is that st- a worldview of uh, how how do we understand our human condition right now and right today? That's what art has always done in 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 its in the entire history, and literature has done to to somehow articulate what we are and who we are and and where we are standing and. Uh, just uh, giving insight into into the deepest recesses of our souls. Fantastic. And uh, to, to, it's hard to be wildly optimistic at this particular moment in time with what's going on in the world. But in general, again, putting coronavirus aside, would you call yourself an optimist? Uh, no, <clears throat> I do not think in such categories. But... Um, Concerning coronavirus, I'm hoping that it will bring the best out of us. And I've seen it already. I've seen on television uh, a a man who is uh, playing the guinea pig for test vaccines, being infected by a mild form of the coronavirus. And that is really heroic. And I I think... uh, uh, this man and others who who do it, women who do it, should instantly get the Nobel Prize in in medicine. They deserve it, and it brings the best out in us. And uh, we just have to do what uh, what logic demands: uh, fight the sucker. And strangely enough, you fight it defensively. Hunkering down starves the sucker. And let's let's be realistic and and professional in how to do it. Uh, I know it was one of your minor roles, but my son and I were lucky enough to be at that premiere of The Grand, and it's for whatever reason it struck us both. And uh, your performance as the German there was just absolutely... I know it's not your most important role, but it's your entertainment. It doesn't matter now if it gave you joy. It's, and if you, if you had your son squeezing next to you into a theater seat, wonderful. I did. Because cinema, cinema had a great quality to bring families together. And... Uh, we shouldn't lose it all together. Exactly, exactly. Well, please stay well, and I hope to see your work for many, many years to come, and I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you all right, thank very you. much thank you. for Bye-bye. listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.